You may have heard uh, the story, but if you have heard it, you're going to see why I'm sharing now. It's uh, one day the devil had a garage sale. And among the tools for sale, there was one with one sign, not for sale. So a curious buyer asked him why this tool was not for sale. The devil answered, I can make do without my other tools, but this one is my favorite one. This is my most efficient tool. I call it discouragement. With this tool, I can get into the heart of man and woman, and when I get there, I can sow anything. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you that You have given us your word, and as we read Psalm 42 and 43 this morning, we are reminded of the incredible God that you are. And as King David faced trials and discouragements and depression, he also discovered again and again the blessing of his hope put into Christ and the hope of the God who is always with him. Father, also as he discovered the blessings of putting faith into action, I pray, Lord, that today as we worship together here, we may hear the voice of your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who anointed these men who wrote these words for us. May the same Holy Spirit now apply these words to our hearts. Your word is the truth. Sanctify your people with the truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, Earlier, Bob was telling how I was trained at one point with the equivalent of the Green Berets in the mountains, and uh, it was called the Alpine Hunters. And uh, I did some mountain climbing at one time in my life, and if you are ready for huge challenges... Don't start it. You talk about yearning for God in the midst of great distress. Uh, Let me share with you one memory of my most distressful time as a rock, on a rock climb. It actually was a day like today, a beautiful blue sky day. The air was fresh. I was young and in tip-top shape, tip-top shape, and part of a climbing school in the Magnificent Alps. And as I watched my instructor climb an 80-foot rock cliff, I looked at it, he looked at it, and it looked so easy. So that's my turn now to climb. At first, it is so easy. It's like basically climbing up on the ladder. I made it halfway, and I felt like a million dollars. And my thoughts were, mountain climbing is thrilling. It was a good start. But the real obstacle started to appear. And all of a sudden, there was no more grips. I couldn't see where to put my foot next and where to hold on to with my hands. And I felt much less sure of myself, much less great for sure. And although the sky was still blue, it looked darker and darker. For a few seconds, I started to panic, and I did everything you're not supposed to do. I looked up and 40 feet to go. I looked down 40 feet And I started to 
panic, glue my body against the wall. I had a strange urge to jump down. My stomach has felt upside down. And as I was climbing the rock, I was getting tiring at that point. I was in bad shape and I experienced incredible distress. And at that moment, my thoughts were, you got to be so crazy to do rock climbing. What are you doing here? But I'm so glad that I was not alone on that wall. From the bottom of the wall, my instructor saw what was happening. He could see what I couldn't see with my own eyes because of my fear. And I glued myself to the wall. So he told me, move back and look around and step by step. He talked to me, he guided me, he reassured me. Finally, I started to relax my trembling body and the look of terror in my face began to disappear and with my sweaty hands, I began to grip the rocks, pull the rest of my body up, I made it to the top. What relief, what joy. And in a way... The experience of the Christian life is very similar to mountain climbing. Now, some have it easier than others, but some face very difficult times. There are those who will tell you, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Yes, it is true. God does love you, but it doesn't mean the life is going to be a smooth journey. I remember a few years ago, I was in a missions conference in Birmingham, Alabama, and I saw a missionary friend of mine that I've not seen for 10 years. He has been laboring among Mexicans in the midst of great trials. He himself was recovering from cancer. Three weeks before the missions conference, his 19-year-old daughter was instantly killed in a car accident. His oldest son was schizophrenic. His second son had holes in his lungs. For my dear brother, who loves God, who trusts God, That journey was not smooth. However, we must remember that we are not alone on this journey because Christ our King has claimed the wall of trials for us and He has paid the price of our many falls and He has guaranteed our security and our safety to the end. And He gave us the Holy Spirit to talk to us to guide us, to comfort us, to reassure us, and to take us all the way home. Isn't this what Jesus is saying in John 14, 26? He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all the things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I have said to you. Jesus said to us, I am with you always. All the way to the end. As we face trials and difficulties in the Christian life, we Christians tend to do what I was doing on that rock in the Alps when I forgot that my instructor was there to guide me step by step. We get glued to the wall of adversities and we find it difficult to listen to the voice of our comforter, God the Holy Spirit. We get overwhelmed by our circumstances and we get depressed and discouraged, opening the door for Satan to come and so doubts. Now, one of the greatest kings in the Bible was King David. And in our text, 
He's not climbing a war, a cliff wall, but he's running for his life. He's in very depressed conditions. The text tells us this about David in the midst of his trials. He cries out day and night. That's a lot of crying. And he's over, over, overcome with fear. And, and God seems so far away from him. But David wrote this psalm through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with the purpose of teaching us today, the church. The Holy Spirit wants to teach all of us today in our times of yearness for closeness to God why we're in the midst of a great distress. May I remind you who King David was? We're talking about the young shepherd with such a great faith that dared to confront the giant Goliath all alone. With the power of God, he knocked him down with just a little rock. That's David. We're talking about the most popular soldier in all of the history of the Old Testament, the leader who defeated army after army. We're talking about the most famous king in the Bible who in the scriptures is called a man after God's own hearts. And he's running for his life. What giant bigger than Goliath could make him so fearful? The giant is a giant of depression. The giant of discouragement. Now what is the reason for his discouragements? Well, he had a lot of good reasons. His own son, Absalom, is chasing him. David has been deposed from his throne. He lost his job as a king. He lost his riches. He lost his glory. And on the top of that, he lost another of his sons. His daughter just got raped. And the nation is disintegrated because of his son Absalom. King David, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Yes, God did love King David. Yes, God had a wonderful plan for his life. But for various reasons, the ride is not smooth. Listen to him in verse 7. Deep caused unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls, all your waves and billows have swept over me. Here David is describing being under a waterfall, and he's not talking about a gentle shower. He's describing a powerful waterfall that exerts a pressure that paralyzes you, a pressure that pushes you down. It crushes you. It's like a tsunami. He's under great pressure, the kind that produces great discouragements. In Psalm 69, he writes, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep myrrh where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. But every time David expresses his distress and discouragement, God is there to meet him. David is not alone. David was never alone. The Holy Spirit is with him, speaking to him. And in Psalm 42, we learn the first lesson from David after about reacting in the midst of great distress. What does he do first? He talks to himself. In verse 5, we hear him saying, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why disturb it within me? Now, Talking to yourself doesn't mean going through 
an introspection trip, you know, an introspection trip can be so sinful and self-centered. Here, David is speaking to himself. Introspection, on the other hand, is listening to myself. Poor me. But here, King David is not listening to himself. He's talking to himself. I don't know if you remember, some of you have known my son Daniel, but um, when he was a little boy, our son Daniel used to say aloud, aloud everything he was going to do. So we used to have, here David saying, Daniel is going to play with his playmobiles now. Then he's going to go outside now. Then he's going to eat now. <clears throat> then he is going to bed now. We knew everything about Danny's daily business. <laughs> you know, when in trouble, we may not need to talk aloud to ourselves like our son Daniel did, but we do need to talk and speak to our soul and put things in perspective, in God's perspective. Why are you downcast of my soul? Why are you so disturbed with me? This why is more of a surprise and a rebuke than a question for which David didn't have the answer. Now, did you know that there's a person in you that talks constantly? Wherever you are, whatever you do, if you're in bed, you're alone, you're at work, that person talks all the time and always has something to say. And theologians call that person the old nature. And he never quits talking. And he never quits telling lies. And believing in his lies is the opposite of putting faith is the one who can trust Christ. And as members of the church of Christ, we are regularly confronted with our sinful natures. Every Sunday, we are called to come to worship God. And in many churches, we start with the confession of sin. And if you have not done so before, hopefully you have done that before you come to worship on Sunday morning, that we tell God that we have believed the lies that our own nature whispers to us. We have not, and we have, we have not kept short account with the unbelief, setters that, unbelief that settles into us. We have a chance, at least on Sunday, maybe we should do that on a daily basis to confess our sins. We are sinners. And sin will not live until we reach heaven. So we need regular repentance and confessions. Our own nature, nature likes sin. However, in Christ, we have received a new nature, a new life. There's a new person who is talking now to us. Who are we going to listen? Our own nature speaks to us. And what does it do? It denies God's promises. Our nature speaks to us to give us an extremely negative outlook and interpretations of events. Our nature speaks to us to tell us not to believe God's words have God truly said. Our nature speaks to us to make us doubt. It says, did really God say that? Can you trust him? Is he truly good? Our nature says, everything is bad today and tomorrow is going to get worse. Our own nature contradicts our new nature. And in Psalm 42, we see that David is, is fed up with his negative thoughts from within him. So he says, be quiet. My, one of my favorite theologians is Dr. Lloyd-Jones. And here's what he writes there. He says, his soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. 
Why are you cast down? What business do you have to be disquieted? Hope in God and remain in that hope. This is the lesson from King David. To teach the church about severe trials that can overwhelm us and bring spiritual depression and discouragement. Speak to yourself. Speak to your soul. Rehearse to yourself the truths of God. Remind your souls of God's unfavorable promises. Remind your souls that God is in control and He's doing good things in spite of the way things look like. Remind yourself to live by faith and not by sight. And remind your soul that you are not alone in that spiritual battle. We are not left alone with our old self, with our old natures. You know why? It is dead. It has been crucified with Christ. It doesn't have any power over us. God has given us the Holy Spirit. And God is speaking louder than any other voices with the voice of His Holy Spirit. He is our instructor to take us up the mountains of life, one step at a time, in times of peace, as well as in times of trouble. He will lead us to the right place at the right time for the right thing. However, many people in times of trials question God. Their why is not a rebuke to themselves, it's a rebuke to God. But we can look at King David in his psalm and see that we shouldn't question God. Instead, we should question ourselves. Why are you cast down on my souls? Years ago, as a young church plant in Lyon, we were going to a high gear. I had invited a very good friend with whom I've gone to seminary many years before. And I invited me to him to join us to be an associate pastor with me and our younger, as younger men, as we walked together across the city of Aix-en-Provence, and I remember going to seminary together, and we talked, st- stopped to have a cafe croissant, and then talked all the way. And I remember with him having heard the best truth of the Reformed faith. So that was a close friend and a good friend. And here we are later, like 10, 15 years later, walking together in a church plant. And one day during a church outing, after a hike of many hours of fun, I was preparing to close our time together with a devotion on the Christian life as it is compared by a race, as a race by the Apostle Paul. So just before the devotion, as an illustration and a visual aid for my talk, I made the suggestion of a 100-meter race. Four young men, my friend and I, decided to do the race. My friend ran 50 meters and collapsed. We were in the midst of hiking country and away from medical help. Nothing could help. A helicopter came. It was too late. My friend never woke up, and he left behind a wife and three daughters. For months, I felt so guilty. What you have? I had never suggested that race. I was crushed by the weight of my thoughts and my questions. We had a lot of young Christians in the church, and they couldn't understand why God let that happen. Some left the church over this tragedy. One person blamed me. You killed him. For months, I asked, why? Why him and not me? Why such a trial in a baby church plant? Why? Why? 
Why? Until one summer night, I took a walk alone under a clear, dark night sky. And as I looked up, I saw, I saw stars everywhere. And there in the still night, I heard the most powerful sermon I have never heard in my life before. And the sermon consists of the words of God speaking to Job. I've been studying Job. And all of a sudden, these words came to me. I'm looking in the sky. And here, what I, this is what I'm hearing. God says, do you have an arm like God? Can you pull in the sea, can you pull in the sea monsters with a fish hook? Tie the sea monsters tongue with a rope? Can you put a row, a cord through the sea monster's nose? Pierce a sea monster's jaw with a hook? Play with the sea monsters like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? Would you discredit God's justice? Condemn God to justify yourself? Who has a claim against God? Who can obscure God's counsels without knowledge? After the Creator's first grand monologue about nature, I did like Job. I became silent. I heard God's words keeping talking in chapter 39 and 40 and 41. Where were you, created man, when I made the universe? Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? If you read this uh, chapter of Job from chapter 39 through 41, you will see that God illustrates man's place before the Creator by talking about a giant sea monster. Just as man cannot subdue and control the powerful sea creatures, the Leviathan, so mortals cannot catch and tame God for their own purposes. And as I heard God's words to Job in my heart, I knew in a deeper way than ever before that God is truly the all-powerful creator, that I was the creature, and that my only right response was a peaceful silence of trust in the sovereign master of the universe who is the savior of my soul and also my loving father who works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. When trial brings distress and discouragement and depression, our place is not to question God, but to ask ourselves the questions, why are you cast down on my soul? Why so disturbed with me? Because of who our God is, there is no valid reason. And that leads us to the second thing that we can learn from David in his distress. In Psalm 42, verse 5 and verse 11 and in Psalm 43, verse 5, David again talks to himself and gives himself and us some very good advices. He says over and over, put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. That's the message. If you don't remember anything that I said today, remember just this. Put your hope in God. God, not in yourself and your ability to do good planning, not in good circumstances, certainly not in psychology, not in self-help books, not in doctors, no, there's nothing wrong with your doctor, not in politics, not in the government, not even in good family values. 
not even in a good husband and wife, not in a safe and stable small town. Because our hope is in God, in God only, in the living God. You know, Christian hope is not positive thinking. The Europeans love positive thinking. But positive thinking works maybe for a very, very short time, but eventually it will leave you more empty than anything before because it's man-centered. People of the school of positive thinking trust in their own ability to turn good into bad by their own attitudes. They say, if only you think the right way, it's going to go right. No. No, our hope is centered in God himself, a living God who is in control of everything, a God who loves us, a God who will never let us down as we put our trust in him. You know, one of the attributes of God, one of the things at the core of the essence of who he is, is his immutability. God never changes. You know what that means? Because he will never change, he will keep his covenant with us. This is an everlasting covenant, he says. The God who declares that he has loved me before the foundation of the word will always love me, whatever happens. The God of the Bible who will always be pure, holy, and just will never change his way of salvation to redeem us like we just sung. He will never require anything from us, but will always apply to us what Christ has already done for us once for all. God won't change his mind about his kingdom being established on earth as it is in heaven. He said it. He promised to be with us always. It has not changed one thing. And to this day, he kept his promise. I am with you. He promised to take care of our needs so we can count on him being our provider and shepherd today and tomorrow and the next day. He has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. If you love church history and you study it, you will see how true that is. In spite of trials in past centuries, the church has thrived. No matter what difficulty the church faces, we know that our God will protect the church and will continue to build the church because that's his church. This is why we can put our trust in God. In parents of distress, King David says to himself, put your hope in God. Put your hope in Him. He says to the church today, put your hope in God. Everything else that you put your hope in can fail and probably will fail, but God will never fail you. And brothers and sisters, we need faith to walk and claim our walls of trials. We must not listen to our own nature. Instead, we must listen to the Holy Spirit. We must speak God's truth to ourselves and trust this truth. You know, Dr. Lawrence writes, the ultimate cause of all spiritual depression is unbelief. The ultimate cause of all spiritual depression is unbelief. So when David wrote these psalms, I want to remind you that he was still in these incredible trials. He didn't see the end with his eyes. He didn't see it. Faith, 
Though does believe what you can't see. If you can't see it, it's not faith. It's sight. And we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. We need to learn from David as we looked at the third thing taking place here in this psalm, they trust. That first of all, we see him under great pressure, attempted to give up to the pressure of his trials. Instead, he speaks to his soul. He reminds his soul God's promises not to listen to his own nature. And secondly, we saw him putting his hope in God. That requires faith. But my friends, we're not just saved by faith. We are called to do what? We are called to live by faith. And that's what we can see here. He's practicing his faith. And so thoroughly we see what does he do? He hopes in God and he worships God. He worships God's. We see that his faith was a living faith. He put his faith into action, and this is how he does it. Verse chapter 43, verse 5, he says, Hope in God, for I will praise him, the head and my countenance and my God. Faith in action praises God. Faith in action worships God. Now here's a question. Do you praise God when things go wrong in your lives? You know, typically we praise God and we sing when we're happy. And typically when we're happy is when things go well. But joy can be experienced anywhere, anytime. Even in prison. Think of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. He's in prison because of the gospel. He's got chains in his feet. What does he do? He sings. He praises God. This is powerful. If he had listened to himself... He could have said, hey God, what are you doing? Look at me. I am your evangelist. I deserve better than that. And I'm having a physical problem that really bothers me. I can't see very well. And oh Lord, this place stinks. And I'm cold. I'm hungry. I am tired. Isn't this enough? No. You know, my friends, Paul was not a superman. He wasn't a super Christian. He was simply a faithful man he was full of faith. He put his faith into action. He praised God in the midst of great difficulties. So King David puts his faith into action in the same way. He does it by turning his thought towards the worship of God. His thoughts go to the church, the assembly of God's people, when they gather to worship together. Chapter 42, verse 4. When I remember these things, he says... I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise with the multitude that kept the pilgrim's feast. What is he talking about? He's talking about the worshiping of God. He's talking about the fellowship of the saints with feasting together. So when we yearn for God in the midst of distress, think of the worship services as David did when he looked back. Think of singing what we just did this morning, these beautiful songs. Think of the words of the songs. Think of the communion of the saints as we share meals together and as we take the Lord's Supper together. I don't know if you sing the doxology here. I love to sing the doxology. And the doxology is what, what I want to sing when things don't go bad. Praise God for whom all blessings flow. This is the body of Christ. You think of the body of Christ being together. You know, the words have camaraderie, but they cannot have the kind of fellowship that only Christians have. We're saved 
by Christ and therefore united with Him. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, we are part of the body of Christ. So when we come together as a church and we celebrate the Lord's Supper in corporate worship with the promise of Christ's presence in our midst, we can only be strengthened and renewed in our souls. This is faith in action. So why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disquieted within, within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him. We praise God in corporate worship in the church and our downcast soul are lifted up. Now at the same time, we must remember that our biblical theology tells us the reality of the present is only a foretaste of the future. More perfect worship. Reformed theology talks about the already and not yet of the kingdom of God. The present reality of corporate worship that we already have is precious. On earth it is precious. And we are already at home in the church, the body of Christ. But our best and perfect worship is not yet. I love the instruments you have here. Well, this is nothing compared to what we're going to experience in heaven. There are going to be more than one harp and trumpet. And a lot more voices and a lot more musicians and the angels and the choirs are going to be, well, it says we cannot count them. You know, years ago, a missionary to China was coming back to the United States. After many years of faithful but hard service to King Jesus, on the same boat was Franklin Roosevelt, who was coming back from a safari hunting trip. And at the port, a huge crowd cheered him. But nobody was there to acclaim this missionary and his wife. And he got upset inside. He said to his wife, it's not right. See this man talking about Franklin Roosevelt? He went to China to kill elephants and he's greeted with acclamation as a hero. And we give our lives, our health, our money to serve Christ in China and when we come home, no one is waiting for us, no one is acclaiming us. He had a good wife. His wife replies softly, Honey, we're not home yet. Home is to be in the presence of the Lord where sin, sickness, and death can discourage us no more because they are no more. From this psalm we learn that King David could not see anything that would change his terrible situation and circumstances. Nevertheless, in faith, he spoke to himself and refused to listen to the lies of his own nature. In faith, he put his hope in God's guaranteed promises. In faith, he praised God and nurtured his faith by thinking of worshiping with God's people. And as anyone from sorrow and depression to joy and celebration. This joy and celebration are real already, but the best is yet to come. Let us pray. Father our God, we are certainly not supermen, super-Christians. We are simple Christians, but Christians saved by grace. You have given us a gift of faith. We want to grow in that gift as we discover on a daily basis, as we go through trials and persecutions and discouragement, allow us, Father, 
to speak to our souls and to rebuke our own nature. Help us to put our hope in you and you alone. And help us to worship you properly so we'll be finding our joy again. And thank you that we can do all the things because of Christ our King. And in his name we pray. Amen.